If you have a Bible or want to reach for one, I'm going to look for just a few minutes before we eat together at the table at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. I come to this text uh, for several reasons. It's a text, uh, in my mind, that has a, a firm backward glance at something God has done for us and a very powerful forward glance. And I'm going to look at the backward glance now and in about half an hour when we're done here and break and go to the commons and begin our night of prayer, I'm going to begin there after we sing for a bit with the forward glance. Um, This has been, of course, much on my mind because of where we are in the close of the century here and the millennium. I wrote the star this week. Some of you may have gotten it already called Endings Are For Thanks and Beginnings Are For Faith. And I, I thought about that, and it, it really hit me in a fresh way. That's not a new thought. Nobody uh, is surprised by that observation. But think about the fact that Thanksgiving is one of the humblest affections because it's an emotional acknowledgement that you're a dependent person. Ungrateful people are proud people. Humble people are always conscious of the fact that they're receiving, even in hard times, and so they're not much given to self-pity and complaining. They're given to thanking. That's the humblest of all people are the thanking people. And faith is one of the most confident and bold affections. So the point where we live between the ending of our past and the beginning of our future is a point where the humblest and the most bold affections meet each other. And I love the thought of Bethlehem becoming a very, very, very humble, very, very, very bold people. And we often don't think of those together, but they're not contradictory. They're not. If the past you look at is a past that you feel blessed by because others, especially God, have graced you, and the future is a place not where you're going to show off, but where God's going to show up and work for you, whether you look back, you feel humbly grateful. Whether you look forward, you feel humbly dependent and confident. It's the best of all ways to live. And so my prayer as we enter the new year is that Bethlehem will become a kind of people who are deeply humble people. I was just reading in Jonathan Edwards this after, well, this evening, of how pride is just the first sin and the hardest to root out of the human heart. And so we need to make extra efforts in prayer to get it out. So I wrote that Star article about endings are for gratitude and beginnings are for faith, and then it was Noel's birthday on the 27th, and I wrote a poem to try to put in verse the same thing called a a conversation between gratitude and faith. I'll put it in the Star someday maybe or put it on the website so you can read it because it was a, a, um, a theological effort to have thanks and faith conversing with each other about the service they render to each other. And then I talked about my 31 years of marriage with Noel and looking back over it and thinking how 
thankful I am and how humble I ought to be that God graced me with such a wife. And then as I look forward to who knows, one, ten, twenty, thirty more years of marriage with Noel before one of us is taken to be with Jesus, I only want to believe and have faith. And so I want to be a humble husband. I want to be a confident and bold and strong husband. And I tried to put it in a poem. And now here I am standing at about, what, 15 minutes away from the year 2000 on the brink of another before and after. And and I want to uh, be faithful to the past in gratitude and faithful to the future in faith. So let's read these verses. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable or cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted or tested in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, there are two exhortations in this text, only two imperatives or commands. The one is to hold fast to our Confession. You see it there at the end of verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And the second one is in verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. So I'm going to talk about verse 16 in the other room. We're going to draw near all night long in prayer about seeking God in times of need for a well-timed help in the year 2000. And there are going to be lots of needs in the year 2000, big ones, little ones, because we are one needy, helpless people. But here at the Lord's table, I want us to just think about holding fast to our confession and how he encourages us to get ready to draw near by the tremendous Confidence that we ought to have in holding fast to our confession. So just notice the, I see five reasons here to hold fast to our confession. Number one, we have a high priest. Since we have a great high priest. Now what does a high priest do for us? Chapter 2, verse 17 says... Our high priest made propitiation for our sin, which means by an offering, a sacrifice, he appeased the wrath of God so that the wrath of God, because of this propitiation, is taken away. So here we come tonight, thinking back over a thousand sins that we committed in 1999. And if we only thought about those sins, we would come into the year 2000 so guilt-laden, there would be no boldness in us, and there would be no joy. 
or hope in us. And therefore, he says, it's because you have a high priest. You have a high priest, and he has made propitiation for your sins. And the second thing we know about this sacrifice is that it was himself. The first insight was chapter 2, verse 17. This one is chapter 7, verse 26, where it says our high priest offered himself. This is a very strange high priest. (laughs) Old Testament high priests offered lambs and pigeons and goats, bulls. Our high priest lays himself on the altar because no bull or goat or pigeon would do to cover the sins of all the people in Christ. But he lays himself down and he becomes both high priest and sacrifice. That's the meaning of having a high priest. And that's what this meal here is all about, the body that was laid down as the sacrifice to cover our sins. So you don't need to look back on those sins and feel hopeless. You can look back on those sins with a measure of repentance and grief and sorrow and then take heart. They are covered, and you can give glory to your Savior by being confident in him and holding fast to your confession of hope in him. Second, I see the word great In verse 14, we have a great high priest. I see the word great unfolded for us in the word Jesus, the Son of God, there in the end of verse 14. Son of God. And last Sunday we saw that in chapter 1, the Son of God is God. And therefore, the greatness of this high priest is greater than which there is no other. He's as great as he can possibly be. Nothing greater than Jesus can be conceived. You cannot conceive of a greatness greater than Jesus. And it took that kind of greatness to lay itself on a cross so that our sins would be utterly, totally forgiven and God's infinite wrath utterly and totally removed. So don't contemplate just any high priest. Contemplate tonight a great high priest, a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Thirdly, I see that this great high priest passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Why did he insert that in verse 14? He passed through the heavens. Well, two things. If he passed through the heavens, he's not dead anymore. He's alive. This great high priest is alive. He is so alive, he's more alive than anybody in this room right now. Our living right now is so fragile, so contingent. And his is, Hebrews says, indestructible. He has his priesthood by virtue of an indestructible life. He passed through the heavens, and the other implication is that he's now with God. He's not in the heavens. That is, he's not in the clouds. He's not in the galaxies. He's above the heavens where God dwells, and he is with God interceding for us with his great sacrifice and his great propitiation and his priestly role. So right now, if you are trusting Jesus, you have a perfect advocate, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect high priest, and he is greater than which can be conceived. So take heart. The whole point of this text is bold. Let us come boldly in the all-night prayer meeting. Let us come boldly. Let us enter the year 2000 not with a whimper but with a bang for the glory of God. And the fourth one I see is this word uh, sympathetic 
Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. So if all that greatness causes you to feel a little bit overpowered because you need not only a sense of greatness about God but a sense of intimacy in God, and we do need both, if God is only great and trumpets resound and there's no soft violin or piccolo or whatever a soft instrument is in the orchestra of our lives and no sweet, tender, kind, gentle, drawing near, hand on the shoulder kind of Jesus, then we will not have the greatness of Christ that is really great. His greatness is the combination of of things that seem opposite to us. And so he is both so magnificent, he's God, and above the heavens, above the galaxies, creating them, holding them in being, and he's right where you are in every pain and every temptation, sympathizing, having similar kinds of emotions such that he can draw near and know what you're going through in a way that he couldn't have had he not become human and been tempted in all points like we are yet. And this is number five, the fifth reason why we should be so encouraged by his high priesthood. He's sinless. And sometimes people say, well, then he doesn't really struggle like I've struggled. Um, C.S. Lewis has a good remark on that, and you know what it is if you've read him, namely that we all give in to sin before it's reached its full force. Jesus, in never giving in, experienced the full force of every temptation. If temptation is like something that builds and grows as it grows and gets harder and harder and harder, as soon as you cave in, you give way to it before it reached its consummation. Jesus never gave in, and therefore every temptation reached its consummation with Jesus, and he endured it to its fullest effort to bring him down, and it never brought him down because he endured it to the end and never gave in. And so it's not as though he hasn't tasted the temptations, even the temptations of the guilt and sin that were poured on him on the cross as he tasted guilt, though he never sinned. So be encouraged that whichever way you look tonight trying to escape encouragement, God's going to cut you off. And see to it that you get encouraged tonight because he wants you to enter this year in 10 minutes or so while we're eating communion with boldness so that we can move to a time of prayer, forgiven, clean, in communion with Jesus. So here's the way we're going to do it. Um, we've done it this way for several years. We'll do it again. Um, let me invite the couples that are going to help me to come up here. Noel will come and David and Sally and Sam and Vicki. And uh, one couple in a moment, just stand here with me in front. Uh, one couple will uh, stand over there with both cup and bread. Uh, that's the Michaels. Uh, Noel and I'll stand here in the middle with cup and bread, and the crab trees will stand over there. So we have three aisles, three accesses. And uh, when I'm done praying, and while Tim is playing, uh, as you feel led, come and take it. And go back to your seat or anywhere. You can get together in little groups or in couples or families or by yourself, however you want to do it. We'll just be silent until everybody who wants to have come uh, comes. And then we'll draw things to a close with song. That's the, the choreography of the moment.
As far as your being a guest with us, um, our practice is to welcome all Christians, believers in Jesus, to the table. And so you don't have to be a member of Bethlehem. But do take this seriously. This is not to be done lightly. And if you're not trusting Christ tonight in his forgiveness, in his propitiation, in his sacrifice, in his promises, but are doubtful about Jesus, then deal with him there. And maybe you'll get ready while you're sitting there in the pew dealing with Jesus, and he will assure you of his love to you, and you'll rest in him, and by the time we're done, you'll have the confidence as a sinner forgiven by grace to come and commune with him. And that's what it is. We call it communion because as you eat this emblem of his body and drink this emblem of his blood, there is a spiritual feeding and there's a spiritual communion between you and the Lord Jesus on the basis of all the truth that we've just seen that is very precious to him and I hope very precious to you. So let me pray over the cup and the bread and then we'll go to our positions and while we're there, You just come when you're ready. And sometime during that, we'll enter into the new year, and it'll be good that we have crossed that line in communion with the Lord. So, Lord Jesus, we're deeply thankful that you have drawn near to us to die for us and rise for us and reign for us and intercede for us. Thank you for the bread that symbolizes your body Thank you for the cup that symbolizes your blood. Draw near and commune with us now. Assure us that through faith you are sufficient for every need that we have and that no matter how badly we've sinned in all our lives or in this year in particular or this day, the blood of Jesus, your blood, is sufficient to cover it all as we trust in you. Draw near now, I pray, and help us in Jesus, your great name, we pray. Amen.